Years ago, the McDonald's Corporation advertised their iconic hamburger called the Big Mac by saying it was made of two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun. The special sauce made the Big Mac unique. All of the other ingredients anybody could put together to make a tasty all-American hamburger. Brilliant marketing, to say the least. Read the book of Acts and you'll discover that besides the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, prayer is the special sauce that God used to make his church explode in growth. Never underestimate the power of a praying church. What the church needs today is not better marketing, but more prayer. I'm Ron Jones, and this is Something Good. Are you waiting on an answer from God today? How much time have you talked to Him about it? Hello and welcome to Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. My name is Brian. Thanks for spending part of your busy Monday with us. Well, you can make a list of pros and cons. You can talk to a pastor, a friend, or a spouse. But unless you're spending a healthy amount of time in prayer, any decision you make will be something of a gamble. Ron talks about the power of prayer today as he continues his series, A.D., Acts of the Apostles. Online you'll find us at somethinggoodradio.org where you can listen to the program on your schedule or make a safe and secure donation to the ministry. That's somethinggoodradio.org. From Acts chapter 1, here's Ron with part 2 of his message, The Power of a Praying Church. That's how we pray as a church that prays the prayer that waits on God. It's up to Him to determine the day, the hour. We pray and we wait on God for the return of Jesus Christ, but we don't know the day or the hour, do we? But we are to be the church that is waiting for Him, praying with a sense of expectation. It could be today that the promised return of our Lord Jesus Christ happens. There's another prayer that happens as we read on a little bit further, and I call this the prayer for wisdom when choosing leaders. Let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. Peter goes on to say, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." You ever read something and later you discover there's more to this than meets the eye? <laughs> That's the way we must read these verses here. It sounds just kind of like a church business meeting after a prayer meeting, right? Ah, we've got some leadership issues to deal with here. Um, Peter addresses the elephant in the room. You know, Judas is not with us. Luke lists all the apostles in the earlier verses, and if you count them, there are 11, not 12. And Peter addresses that elephant, and he links it to Old Testament prophecy, by the way, that this was prophesied about one of us, and Judas was the fulfillment of that. His tragic death, I mean, he betrayed Jesus, regretted it, took his own life. Judas's tragic death was prophesied in Scripture. And Peter, Peter deals with that in the business meeting here. But then he, he does some math. He realizes we need 12, not 11. Well, why not go forward with 11? Well, maybe he remembers that Jesus said sometime during his ministry with the disciples that one day you all will sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. They had 11, not 12. It didn't take a calculus major to figure that out. And so Peter says, now we must um, find the 12th apostle. Now, here's where it goes from just a rather benign business meeting to I'm, I'm going to take you into the deep end of theology because there's more going on here than what meets the eye. Uh, Peter does several things. First, he, he, he establishes the criteria by which this replacement disciple and apostle would be chosen. Then they pray, and then they do something really weird at the end that I'll address at the end here, okay? But he establishes the criteria. He says, the man who is qualified to fill Judas's role and join us as disciples, he will be a man who is, has been with us from the beginning, from the beginning of John's baptism all the way to the ascension. There was a larger group of followers than just the 12, and it needed to be somebody who could say, I was there in the beginning, and also somebody who could say, I saw the risen Christ with my own eyes, okay? Why was that important? Well, because in a Roman culture, the minimum requirement for a credible witness in a court of law was an eyewitness. And this was part of the authority by which the disciples and the early apostles went into, you know, their culture. They could say, you know, with spiritual authority, we were there from the beginning and we saw the risen Christ with our own eyes. Now, when Jesus was here and ministering, you read it in the Gospels, His spiritual authority was challenged many times. People would come to Him and say, Jesus, why do you say the things that you say and do the things that you do? And He would always point to the Father who sent Him and also to the signs and wonders and miracles that He performed that Old Testament prophecy said would happen when Messiah comes, okay? But they challenged his spiritual authority. Prior to the coming of Jesus, the spiritual authority by which God's representatives came in the Old Testament was what we would call prophetic authority. A prophet of God would show up and say, thus saith the Lord. How did you know whether he was authentic or not? The criteria was 100% of what he predicted in the future must come true. Anything less than that, he's a false prophet. 
He spoke with prophetic authority. Jesus spoke with his own authority that he described. Now, now we're about ready to birth the church. We're about to enter into the apostolic era. And the early apostles went in what we call apostolic authority. We were there from the beginning. We saw the risen Christ, and their message and authority was confirmed with signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, friends, we do not live in the apostolic era. Here's why. There's not one of us that fits the criteria. We weren't there in the beginning, from the beginning of John's baptism. We have not seen the risen Christ with our own eyes. That was the criteria by which an apostle was identified. The era, what we call the apostolic era, ended with the death of the apostles. Today, it would be wrong for me to stand up and say, I'm Apostle Ron, okay? I would be claiming a false apostolic authority. I wasn't there. I didn't see the risen Christ. It would also be uh, inappropriate for me to assume that my ministry should be confirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. That was for the apostolic era. We don't speak, the church today does not speak with apostolic authority. We speak with biblical authority. We have what the apostles did not have in the first century. It was still in process of being written. We stand up and say, the Bible says, okay? We don't have apostolic authority, but we have the uh, apostolic accounts, the first century eyewitness accounts of what happened, and we have the completed canon of Scripture. Now, let me be very careful about what I say here, and I don't want any misunderstanding here. I am not saying that God is out of the miracle business. He's not. God can do whatever He wants to do. But you study miracles in the Bible, they appear, they disappear. They appear, they disappear. Moses performed miracles before Pharaoh, but the patriarchs didn't perform miracles. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they didn't perform miracles. Elijah and Elisha performed miracles. Elisha, two times the miracles that Elijah performed, but not every prophet in the Old Testament. In fact, most of them did not perform miracles. Miracles would cease to be special and would not have the ability to point us to something new that happened if they happened all the time. The Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah says, when He comes, look for the signs, the wonders, the miracles. And that carried on through the apostolic era until biblical authority was established, okay? Now, God's still in the miracle business, all right? But not for the purpose that He was during the apostolic era to confirm the apostolic authority of the apostles who didn't have the full canon of Scripture. Does that make sense with me so far? Still ahead, the rest of Dr. Ron Jones' message, The Power of a Praying Church, right here on Something Good Radio. SomethingGoodRadio.org is the place to go to hear any of Ron's messages on demand. That's SomethingGoodRadio.org. When you stop by, check out the new Something Good digital library where you can search to find answers to your biblical questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. You can stream for free and on demand at somethinggoodradio.org. For your gift to Something Good Radio today, you can own the complete audio download to the series you're hearing now 
AD, Acts of the Apostles. That's all 19 messages in Ron's teaching series, AD, Acts of the Apostles. It's our way of saying thank you for your gift to Something Good Radio. Donate online at somethinggoodradio.org. That's somethinggoodradio.org. Or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23456. You can also call our offices at 757-276-1099. And now let's get back to Ron for the second half of today's message, The Power of a Praying Church. Now let's fast forward through church history. Let's go all the way up to the 16th century, when over time, the church kind of lost its way. We call it the Dark Ages, okay? And the church, quite frankly, became corrupted. And papal authority superseded biblical authority. By the 1600s in the Protestant Reformation, it was no longer what the Bible said, it's what the Pope in Rome said, okay? It took the Protestant Reformation to rescue the church from papal authority and restore biblical authority. The Protestant Reformation, one of the cries of the Reformers was sola scriptura. It was Latin for, you know, by Scripture alone. They were, they were saying, listen, we, we have, we have uh, uh, lost biblical authority and it's been superseded by the Pope. And what the Reformers said was, if it ain't in the Bible, I don't care what the Pope says. And they reestablished what we call biblical authority. And the church continued on from then, and here we are today, again, speaking with biblical authority. I'm not an apostle. I don't meet the criteria. I'm a pastor and a teacher. And you ask me, Ron, why do you say the things that you say and do the things that you do? I I say, because the Bible says, because this is the Word of God. Friends, in all of this, you know, theological debate and discussion in the church today, understand this. God would much rather us believe Him because we take Him at His Word than believe Him because we saw some sign or wonder out there or miracle. And you study the life of Jesus in the Gospels, He was very hesitant to perform miracles for people who said, oh, you claim to be the Messiah, prove it to us with some wonder, some sign, some miracle out there. When the religious leaders did that, He said, nah, I'm not a circus act, but I'll tell you, I'll point you to Jonah in the Old Testament. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He used the opportunity to predict his own resurrection and in a sense said, listen, if you don't believe me when I walk out of that grave, no sign, wonder, or miracle will get you to believe. So today, and after the apostolic era, after the death of the apostles, the church goes forward in biblical authority with a resurrection story and gospel message, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Now we're on this side of Pentecost, okay? And the Word of God in our hands. And this is our authority. Now one other thought here. There are challenges to biblical authority in every generation. And there are three that I see. In, in, in our time. One is a continued challenge by papal authority. Now we have the divide between Protestants and Catholics, and the Roman Catholic Church still, you know, papal authority kind of supersedes biblical authority. Uh, the other is when people in our day and age, even Protestants, try to act like the apostles, pun intended. 
They act like the apostles and assume that their ministry should be confirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. And there's a subtle uh, attack on biblical authority there. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves when we're studying the book of Acts, one of the understandings, is that Acts describes a transitional time in the program of God. We're transitioning from the Old Testament and the time of Jesus' ministry you know, to the church age. And is the book of Acts at any point, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? Does it describe the Acts of the Apostles or does it prescribe how we are to act like the Apostles? Follow me on the difference there? And, and that's an important question to ask in any place and especially in Acts chapter 1. Because I said when they were choosing leaders, the new leader, the new apostle, Peter does three things. He establishes the criteria for apostolic authority. You have to have been there. You have to have seen the risen Christ. And then they pray. And then they do something really weird. It's like they say, hey, pull out the bingo cards. Let's roll the dice. Because their criteria and their praying brought them to two equally good options, a guy named Justice and a guy named Matthias. They fit the criteria, and they prayed, and they said, wow, we got these. Either one would be good. And they pulled out the dice, and they rolled the dice. Now, is that descriptive or prescriptive? Should we become the uh, First Baptist Church of the dice rollers? Is that how we're to make decisions today? That's an important question to ask. No, it's, it's, it's descriptive, and here, here's why they did it that way. Before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came, casting lots was a common way to discern the will of God after much prayer. And this is what the early church does. And you see some of this practice and other things even in the Old Testament. But you never see the early church rolling the dice again or drawing straws or flipping the coin to make a decision. Never again in the book of Acts do they do that. Why? Because after Pentecost, they have the additional resource of the Holy Spirit living inside of them to discern the will of God whether it comes to choosing leaders or whatever decision they come to. So by Acts chapter 6, when they're choosing the first deacons, they pray and they look for men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, but there's no rolling of the dice, there's no drawing straws, there's no flipping the coin. And this is important for us to remember. You've got to be very careful in how you understand and 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 interpret the book of Acts before and after the day of Pentecost and before and after and during the apostolic era. That's the deep end of theology for the morning, and I hope I didn't lose any of you there. The big picture is this. This church prayed. It prayed. Uh, before Pentecost, casting lots was a way to discern the will of God after much prayer. After Pentecost, I say the best chance of making a wise decision in the absence of prayer, in the absence of the Holy Spirit, is no better than a gamble. Ah, if, you, if you're not going to seek God in prayer and, and the discernment of the Holy Spirit, then just draw straws or flip a coin and take what you get. But that's not how we are to discern God's will 
as uh, New Testament believers today. We have that additional resource of the Holy Spirit that comes in Acts chapter 2. They were a praying church. They had a resurrection message. We have a resurrection message. They, they eventually had the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. They were a praying church. The question is, are we a praying church? Uh, is, is prayer more than just something we dabble in? Is it something we are devoted to? I always say we can always do more after we have prayed, but we should never do more until we have prayed. That's true in your individual life, my individual life. It's true of us corporately as a church. And uh, important, important lessons for us to take. Thanks so much for stopping by for today's Something Good radio message, The Power of a Praying Church. And Ron, there's so much we can say about the power of prayer. Almost no way to answer all the questions about it in just one or two minutes. But as we wrap up today's Something Good radio message, how about giving us one thing that prayer can do in our lives that perhaps we don't often think about? Well, that's a great question, Brian. And to find an answer, let's go all the way back to the Garden of Gethsemane, something I've discussed a few times here recently. Think about the garden where we have Jesus praying alone while his disciples try and fail to stay awake. He's tormented about his uh, impending torture and crucifixion. He's crying out to God about whether or not there is another way to redeem mankind. His sweat is like drops of blood. Imagine that scene, Brian. Moments later, after praying to his father and surrendering to his father's will, look at the change that comes over Jesus. He is no longer uncertain and anxious. He is no longer fearful. In fact, not too long after praying, the Roman soldiers, with Judas in tow, come to arrest Jesus. And Peter, if you remember, cuts off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. Do you remember what Jesus said? <laughs> Put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Look at the confidence there, Brian. Look at the certainty in Jesus' mind about what he now had to do. No fear, no doubt, but rather a deep conviction that doing his Father's will is exactly what he must do, and in a strange way, exactly what he wants to do. A few minutes ago, uh, he asked if God would let the cup pass from him. Now he is practically eager to drink it. Uh, Brian, this is a very off-the-radar benefit of prayer, the idea that prayer replaces anxiety with certainty. It removes fear and puts faith in its place. Now, of course, sometimes God will heal you. Sometimes he'll let the cup pass from you. But here's the thing that really speaks to the power of prayer. When we as both individuals and as the church in general begin to pray fervently and consistently, our circumstances may or may not change. But we will change from timidity to certainty, from doubt to firm conviction. Uh, that's a benefit of prayer we may not always notice or consider, but it might be the greatest one there is. I love that answer, Ron, and it's so true. Prayer can very often infuse us with a confidence we didn't have before and spur us on towards our high calling in Christ. Okay, Ron, we're almost out of time, but if you would, how about telling us what's in store on tomorrow's broadcast? Yes, and thanks, Brian. Well, so far we've covered a couple of foundational ideas that sort of set the tone for the entire book of Acts. 
Uh, we talked about the way Jesus, on whom the church is built, revolutionizes hearts and minds. And today we talked about the power of prayer and how it drove the apostles to do the things they did. Tomorrow, I'll talk about the way the church actually began. And as you know, Brian, it began dramatically in miraculous fashion on the day of Pentecost. Just an incredible account of how the church got its start some 2,000 years ago. That's where we're headed next time as I continue my series, A.D. Acts of the Apostles. That's next time when Ron shares his message, The Supernatural Birth of the Church. Join us then for Something Good. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis saying God bless and thanks for listening.